Hey guys, welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is sponsored by PicDrop. PicDrop is an image transfer tool. It was designed by a photographer with photographers in mind. Um, it's a really easy tool to use when you need to send off your files to your clients you're working with. It allows you to create custom galleries. Uh, your clients can write notes on the photos, rate them. It's just a really uh, easy place to organize all your photos in one spot and communicate with your clients is so much easier. Uh, it looks professional. It's easy to use. I've been using it for a few weeks now and it's really this kind of uh, changed the game for me because for years I was using you know zip folders and some of those old outdated file transfer sites like Dropbox or WeTransfer with PicDrop they really have photographers in mind and it's allowed me to just stay more organized and communicate with my clients way better and uh, yeah I can't say enough about it and with today's episode if you use the promo code photo banter when you sign up at pickdrop.com you're going to get an extra two months free on top of the one month free trial they give you already so with the promo code photo banter you're going to get three months free of the pickdrop image transfer tool at pickdrop.com so definitely go check it out and remember to use the promo code photo banter when you sign up at pickdrop.com uh, so without further ado uh, we'll get into the episode and thanks so much welcome to the photo banter podcast i'm your host alex gagne and on today's podcast i speak with photojournalist santiago lyon santiago spent years documenting conflicts in areas such as afghanistan bosnia croatia and el salvador to name a few Santiago later went on to become the vice president and director of photography for the Associated Press, where he worked for 13 years and earned several Pulitzer Prizes under his leadership. Currently, Santiago is the director of editorial content at Adobe, as well as serving on the board of directors for the Eddie Adams Workshop. Santiago has a wealth of knowledge in photography, so I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him about everything he's done within his career. So I hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, uh, Santiago Lyon, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. And uh, got to give a big shout-out to our mutual friend, uh, uh, Clay, who, uh, who uh, Clay McBride, who uh, linked this together. So thanks, Clay. Um, and I guess to kind of start off, I was kind of curious, like, where you grew up and, like, how you kind of got into photography initially. So I was born in Spain to American parents, uh, but I mainly grew up in Ireland. And so after I got out of high school in Ireland, I decided to take a gap year between high school and university. And I went down to Spain and I started working in journalism. My father had been a journalist for many years. And I started to work uh, translating news from uh, Spanish to English from Central America at that time in the mid-1980s. And of course, the news from that part of the world was very dramatic, guerrilla insurgencies, rebel fighters, all sorts of amazing stuff. And so as a 17-year-old kid, I was reading these stories and thinking, this is unbelievable. I have to see this with my own eyes. And somebody said to me, kid, if you want to be uh, a witness to this sort of stuff, you should become a photographer because they get to see everything. Wow. What kind of journalism was your father doing? He mainly worked for the news agencies, for United Press International and then for the AP. 
but then he also worked a lot for Spanish um, news organizations. You know, he was born in Yonkers, New York, and you know, grew up in Westchester County, but he moved to Spain at an early age. Uh, his big passion at that time, and still to some degree, is bullfighting and everything related to, to that world. Wow, that's interesting. And how did you kind of, once you kind of, with the photography, um, I know how you kind of mentioned if you wanted to get into action, photography is the way to do it. Um, how did you kind of like teach yourself this, the uh, skill of photography? Did you end up studying it or you just kind of teach yourself or how did that kind of work for you? Well, at that time in the pre-digital world, photography was a very much of a, um, a trade. And so you had to learn how to develop film, and then you had to learn how to make prints, and you typed out your captions on sticky caption paper, and then you sent your pictures through a special machine down the telephone line, and each picture took 15 minutes, <laughs> and it was a very much of a a craft, very almost artisanal craft. Yeah. So the first thing you had to learn was how to do all of those things, and then maybe you got to go out with a camera and make some pictures. And so you just kind of figured out yourself with no like formal training, really? Or no, I had. I was very fortunate. I had some mentors who took me under their wing and taught me the craft. And um, you know, I would be sent out with uh, one roll of film, thirty-six exposures to shoot two jobs. And so you learn quickly how to edit in your head. And at that time, also, it was all manual focus. So you had to learn, you know, all about focusing and follow focusing and all those sorts of things. So over a couple of years, I began to learn those things. And it turns out that I had a, a fairly decent photographic eye that allowed me to see pictures. And so I started off shooting soccer games and politics and that sort of stuff. And over time, um, I became better at it, and eventually, some years later, I made my way to um, Central America for Reuters news agency at the time. Wow. And started photographing events there. How did you get your foot in the door at Reuters? How did that kind of come together for you? So I had uh, been uh, a freelancer stringing at uh, UPI, United Press International, and then in 1985, Reuters bought the international service of UPI. So I started freelancing for them, and then eventually they put me on staff in Madrid, and then I was able to transfer to Mexico City and down into Central America. That's interesting. Like, what do you think it is about photojournalism you think you're uh, drawn to most? Um, what kind of what you think interested you most about it? Were there like any photographers um, you're looking at that kind of you admired or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I remember as a kid seeing some of the news magazines around the time of the Vietnam War um, and being struck. I remember by a, a famous picture by Larry Burroughs um, showing uh, a wounded uh, Marine reaching out to another Marine, I believe. Um, and then I remember that, that resonated with me. And then when I started to get into photography, I would say my two main influences were uh, Robert Kappa. Uh, especially because of his work on the Civil War, because I had this connection to Spain, so that resonated. And Don McCullen was another one whose, whose work I admired. Uh, but I was also exposed to a lot of photography f through the news agency world. So I remember seeing Eddie Adams' famous picture. I remember seeing uh, Nick Ut's Napalm Girl. Because as a kid, I would have to wait for my father to finish his shift when he was working at the AP. And so there were these sort of yearbooks of photography that they would put together. And I would, you know, page through those as a young boy. So I was exposed to photography 
you know, sort of peripherally quite early on. That's interesting. And when you kind of got to, I think you said you went to South America for Reuters, what kind of stuff were you shooting once you got there for them? So they sent me to Mexico um, to be chief photographer for Mexico and Central America. I was aged all of 23 years old. So you must have been ex- pretty excited. Uh, it was exciting. Um, most of the people who were on my team were at least 10 years older than me. Um, so I had a lot to learn from them. And at that time when I got there, it was the tail end of the war in El Salvador followed by the U.S. invasion of Panama, followed by the elections in Nicaragua, where the, where the um, you know, the Sandinistas lost power. Um, and then from there, it morphed into other assignments around the world. Was like, because looking at a lot of the work, I was looking at the site um, on Adobe with some of your work you've done, you, you've covered a lot of conflicts and wars and whatnot. Was that always kind of your goal? That's what you wanted to cover? What about that drew you to that, you think? I think it was the desire to tell stories. I mean, I've always looked at photography as being a storytelling tool. Mm. And if it helps tell stories and communicate people's reality, then it serves a purpose. With regards to the conflict, um, I was drawn initially, I think, to the drama of what I had been reading about, as I mentioned when I when I started out reading and translating these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also came to learn that I had a fairly good ability to stay concentrated and focused at the task at hand, even when all hell was breaking loose around me. Mm-hmm. And do, do, do like... I. I feel weird like using that phrase like war photographer, conflict photographer. Do, do you feel like photographers don't like being put in that like silo, I guess? Because at the end of the day, you're a photographer, you're storytelling. Like, do you think it's weird that people put that to it? I guess that's just a way to describe it, you think? or I think it's a label, and we have a tendency to label things just to make them easier to understand. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about working for a, for a news agency or a wire service like Reuters or subsequently for me, the Associated Press, was that you're expected to be a generalist. You're expected to be able to make good pictures of any news or sports or entertainment event. And then within that sort of generalist ability, you often have a specialty. Mm. And my specialty um, initially, strangely enough, was soccer. I shot a lot of soccer, Mm. uh, you know, European soccer and World Cup soccer tournaments and that. And then over time, my specialty morphed into sort of war, conflict, disaster, anything that was particularly challenging. Do you remember the first conflict you you were uh, covering? And like, do you remember even like what your mindset back then was going into a situation like that? Um, well, you're always a little bit scared because, yeah. you know, typically there are people running around with guns trying to kill each other. Yeah. Um, of course, at that time, I think journalists benefited from a certain uh, neutral and respected status. Um, and so often we were allowed to do our work, not to say it wasn't dangerous, of course it was, but we weren't targeted in the way that we are today. So my first experience with that was in El Salvador. At the end of the Civil War there, the guerrilla forces made one last big offensive, and I was sent out into the field to see what I could document, and that was my first experience of getting shot at and hearing bullets and and all of that. And, you know, it became 
sort of gradually over time an important part of my identity because as I got better at it and more experienced at it, um, the results were better, the work was more effective, the work was more powerful, and then over time it became recognized with prizes and whatnot, and so it really became a part of who I was for a long time. Does it become like a, a addictive in a sense? Like I would imagine I've never been in a situation like that, but you're, it's got to be when people are like, basically like you said guns and violence and your adrenaline's got to be going because you're in this like life and death situation does it become like an addiction to be in that type of environment or just to keep putting yourself in that i guess i don't know well it can be very compelling um you know winston churchill once famously said there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at without result (laughs) um so there's certainly an adrenaline factor to it and an intensity factor to it Um, which makes it attractive. And it's also a very unique and somewhat privileged lifestyle in the sense that you have a a front row seat to history. You're watching history as it happens. Somebody said that journalism is the first rough draft of history. Hmm. And so you're right there. Um, And then, of course, the flip side of that is that it's dangerous. It's horrifying. You see and smell and hear things that stay with you for the rest of your life. And so it marks you, certainly. So it has its pros and its cons. Do you ever get used to it? Like, did, did, when you're doing it, you did it for years. Like, did, was there ever a point where you just felt, like, comfortable with it? Or was it always just, like, uh, this, like, a, a scary situation? I mean, obviously, it's scary, but the longer you do it, do you, do you feel, like, calmer with it or...? I think you can in the sense that you get um, more practiced at it. So like anything, if you practice at it, you get better at it. Yeah. And as you get better at it, some of the barriers um, are lowered. Um, but there's always a factor of uncertainty, and there's always a factor of potential um, danger and death and dismemberment and all of the terrible things that can happen at war. What do your family think of you getting into that line of work where they... Um, I think my parents were definitely worried and concerned, and I know I put them through a lot of stress, Um, but I was focused on my career, and they were happy to see me doing something that I was passionate about. Yeah, definitely. And like when you're photographing um, in a situation like that, you're 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 there. There's so much going on, but there you're there to make a compelling photograph. How how do you focus yourself to like like deal with like because you're trying to compose a really good photo? Like how do you approach that? Because there's so much going on, but then you're there trying to focus to make a compelling photo at the same time. I think for me, it's all about concentration. And it's all about staying focused psychologically on the task at hand and recognizing that you're there to do a job and to tell a story. And you have to, in as much as you can, put your emotions and your fears to one side and do what you're there to do, which is to show the world what's happening. Yeah, because what was your mindset? Like, what was your goal when covering like that? Was there something you are hoping people would take away from your photos? Or what what was, I guess, your overall goal with, like, documenting such stuff like that? I mean, you want to show the reality that is conflict or (laughs) war, and that's a very rough reality. Mm. Um, But your job is to inform. Your job is not to shock you want people to look at your pictures and spend some time with them and take something from them. And photography, I think, works 
when it resonates typically with one of three areas of the body. It either resonates psychologically, so it's your head, um, or it's your heart, or it's your stomach. Mm. And so you try and use your photography in order that it resonate and tell the story effectively. And when you're working for, like you're with Reuters and whatnot, um, is it is it you're trying to tell a story through like one dramatic image that the, they can publish in the newspaper, or is it more you're trying to tell a story with a uh, group of photos in a broader sense, or what was your approach when you're documenting such conflicts like that? Well, it has a lot to do with the technology at the time. And so when I started off, it was very much an analog world. So one black and white picture took 15 minutes to send, a color picture took 45 minutes. There was only a limited amount of time in the day to send pictures. So typically, a news service like the AP or Reuters would be limited to maybe 100 pictures a day, which meant that you were limited on each story to a couple of pictures a day. And then as the technology developed and became digital and got faster and the flow of images began to speed up, you would often be telling a story with multiple pictures. Mm. So it's morphed over time as a function of um, technology. And now that you've, you've kind of uh, worked in both roles, being like an editor yourself and shooting, and when you're shooting, you're dealing with editors, um, what do you think, uh, what do editors bring to the table um, when you're a photographer, you're out there in the trenches shooting, what is it the editor brings to the table? Do you feel like they, they help you kind of guide your photography, or how does that relationship work, you think? Well, photographers are often very close to the images that they make. Um, both physically, obviously, but also emotionally. And so it's difficult sometimes for photographers to separate themselves from the circumstances under which the picture was made. So a photographer can often very precisely tell you what they were feeling or what, the, what it smelt like or how long they'd been waiting or how hot it was or what happened to them. And that's valid. You have to photograph with passion and you have to be into it. However, when you're editing images, it help, when you're editing images, it helps to be dispassionate. It helps to be more clinical, and so I think a skillful editor is able to look at a body of work and assess it on its merits, and begin to sort of polish it and bring out the best in it, whether it's through image selection or cropping or sequencing whatever it might be. Was that ever like tough when you're out there in the field? Did you ever like butt heads with your editor? Was that like a, was it like a difficult relationship time? Sometimes kind of explaining like, hey, you should use this or how, how did that kind of work? It varies. It depends on the personalities involved. It depends on the communication. It depends on the relationships. But sure, sometimes you're dealing with editors who, you know, are not particularly interested in what you're doing or are in a hurry themselves or have other things to worry about. And other times you have the luxury of dealing with editors who have more time. So it's a mixed bag. And what was like, I mean, I guess it's probably no typical day, but when you're out there, you like you say, for instance, you were in Afghanistan, you were photographing the Taliban. Like, are you out there for weeks and months covering that? Or like, what was like a typical day? What was your, what did your life look like back then? So for the news agency photographer, at least when I started, the, the fundamental customer was the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And newspapers have a very well-defined rhythm to them. Um, they typically spend all day gathering the various elements, and then at a certain time at night they do what's called calling the 
putting the paper to bed. And so depending on the time zone you're in, there are different deadlines. And because at that time the technology was very analog, you could be in the field for a limited amount of time, but then you had to return to a base in order to develop your film and send your pictures. And so the rhythm of the day was often influenced by that, depending on what time zone you were in, what deadlines you were trying to get. And so you would often photograph for a few hours in the morning and then peel back and spend the rest of the day sending your pictures. But as the technology developed and you could send pictures from the field using digital cameras and small satellite telephones, you could spend more time in the field. So again, it really depended on what era we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. So when you're back then, or you guys are shooting, and then you go back to wherever you're staying and just kind of develop and film, like basically in the bathroom or something? <laughs> yeah, we would um, usually set up a darkroom. So you'd travel with a portable darkroom, yeah. uh, usually a couple of aluminum cases, and in there there would be all of your developing equipment and for a time all of your printing equipment. So you would have a portable enlarger and trays and safe lights and all that stuff. So you would get to your hotel and you would basically first make the bathroom dark mm -hmm. by putting uh, plastic and gaffer tape and stuff, and then setting up all of your chemistry, and then it meant that when you came back from the field, you could uh, go in and develop and print your work. Do you feel like, uh, being that you like were a film photographer, uh, do, you, do you feel like uh, you learn more about your work that way? Because nowadays, I think, uh, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of like news photographers and stuff, they'll just shoot it and they'll just get like basically sent off to like some editor not in the same location that's on a, on a wi-fi or something do you feel like uh you learn more of this being so immersed you're developing your own film you're looking at everything you're kind of editing whereas nowadays digital it's so quick like the photographer might not even really sometimes have time to edit they just kind of shoot and send it off yeah usually the photographer has an important role in making a selection of images mm -hmm. Um, often nowadays photographers are shooting and then looking at the screens on the backs of their cameras and making a rough selection and then sending those pictures directly from the backs of their cameras to a remote editor mm. so they often can't see the details of the picture if it's in focus or if a person has its, their eyes closed or, or whatever. Um, but having a film background, I think, is both a pro and a con. It's a pro in the sense that you can often edit in your head before you even raise the camera to your face mm. because you know what you're going to see, you know what you want to get. The con is that as a film photographer, because film was expensive and because you were often developing it yourself, you often didn't have the same opportunity to experiment and to grow photographically in a way that is very possible now with, with digital imagery. Yeah, definitely. And um, do you feel like uh, spending so much time in those uh, conflict areas, um, did it start to kind of take a toll on you after a while? Because reading about some other photographers, they kind of deal with like PTSD sometimes and, and being in that line of work, you're Obviously, photographers, they lose their life sometimes in those situations. Did it take a toll on you after a while? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's very exhausting psychologically and very dangerous physically. I mean, I think over the years that I was doing conflict photography, which were from 1989 to 1999, 
Um, I probably lost a dozen or more friends. Some of them were close friends. Some of them were more colleagues or acquaintances. But it definitely takes a psychological toll, and it's definitely, um, at least in my case, damaging in the sense that, you know, it messes with your head, and and that's why I stopped. I just had enough. My glass was full. Yeah, I, yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, you lose a friend. It's got to make you think twice. Like, what am I? What am I doing here? Sure. I mean, you know, people who do that line of work tend to be very driven and very passionate and very focused on the mission of telling the truth and getting stories out there. Um, and that's what drives you to a large degree. But, you know, everybody's different. Some people can do it for longer. Some people stop more quickly. Some people develop PTSD. Some people don't. I mean, everybody's different. Yeah, definitely. And was that like hard to walk away from? Like when you stepped away from shooting in those environments, was it a difficult decision for you? Um, what did you kind of transition to after that, I guess? Well, the decision to stop wasn't that difficult. I just stopped. Yeah. Um, the difficulty came afterwards when I realized that uh, having stopped, it meant that I had to sort of reinvent myself. My identity had become associated with that line of work, and through sort of self-preservation, I decided to stop doing that line of work. So the question then became, well, who am I now? Um, and so the couple of years after I stopped were probably the most difficult years of my life in the sense that I was having what I would call an identity crisis and trying to figure out what to do with myself. And initially I started photographing the same sorts of assignments that I had started my career, um, soccer games and politics and all that sort of stuff. But honestly, I didn't find that very fulfilling at that time, the second time around. And so I really needed to, to make a reset. And I ended up fortunate enough to get a mid-career fellowship, a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. Wow. And I was able to come to the United States and sort of began to figure out what I wanted to do next. And, yeah, I was going to ask you, um, how was that that fellowship? How did it kind of come about? And um, what was your experience, uh, I guess, being there in Harvard, such an amazing institution? Well, you know, I had never gone to university because, of, as I mentioned, I had started my career straight out of high school. Mm -hmm. So technically, I'm still on my gap year. <laughs> um, and so for me, going to Harvard was my first university experience. So I found it fascinating, the time to study the things I was interested in. Like I found myself in the divinity school studying the Old Testament because I was curious. I found myself at the School of Government learning about human rights. I found myself um, writing memoir about some of my experiences. Uh, I also took advantage of the year there to find a psychiatrist and do the, the mental laundry and sort of put to rest some of the things that were bothering with me, or at least make them manageable. And so it was a very uh, fulfilling, enriching experience. Yeah, like, it's probably a dumb question. Like, what what is a fellowship? Like, what is the, how many, is there like a, is it like a normal, like, is there like a group of people that are in it together? Or is it more, you're kind of, they bring you there and you kind of do what you want? Or I guess what's the... So the Neiman Fellowship is offered to approximately, I think it's 24 or 25 fellows every year. Half of them are U.S. citizens and half of them are from other countries. And you basically have to present a study plan, what you're interested in learning and why and how it's going to make you a better journalist or advance your career. 
And then if you get accepted, you get to attend or audit uh, any number of classes that you're interested in, if the professor agrees, at Harvard or any of the surrounding universities. So it's really an opportunity to immerse yourself as a, as a sort of a mid-career journalist into whatever it is you're interested in or passionate about. What did you end up doing after that? Did you keep thinking you're going to be a like a shooting photographer? Or what was kind of your next step after you went through that fellowship? So halfway through the fellowship, um, there was a change of leadership at the Associated Press. And so I came down to New York and introduced myself to those people. Um, and it turns out that the job of director of photography for the entire Associated Press was open at that time, and they were looking to fill it. Wow. And so we started to have some conversations about whether I might be interested in that role, and so ultimately I decided that I was. And so as soon as I finished the fellowship, I moved to New York and took over at the helm of the AP's photo operation. And what does that entail? What do you have to handle in a position like that? So I think when I started there in uh, late 2003, Beginning 2004, um, there were about 400 employees, maybe 300 staff photographers and 100 or 300, so. 300? 300. Wow. Uh, 300 staff photographers and maybe 100 editors of different types. And then there were literally thousands of freelancers. And then there were multiple relationships with um other cooperating news agencies and other sources of imagery. I think the budget for the AP's global photo department when I started was about $60 million. Ooh. So I went sort of, you know, into the deep end and it was perfect for me because I was looking for something challenging. I was looking for something complex. Um, I had the field experience. I have a knack with people and, you know, communicating and all of that. And so I got stuck into it uh, and began to, to do what needed doing. Did that take you a while to get used to, like, uh, managing such – because you go from – you're in the field. I would guess you're basically out there by yourself, the shooting, doing your thing, and now you're overseeing these hundreds of people. Did it take you a while to get comfortable in that role? Well, it was a question of scale because prior to going to the fellowship, I had been based in Spain where I was running a small operation of maybe a dozen freelance photographers around Spain and Portugal. And so I had some very limited experience about running teams of people and, and getting stuff done. And I'd also taken on leadership roles in the field on bigger stories, organizing stuff. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed coordinating and conducting, if you like, the, the various elements of it. So doing it at the level of director of photography at the AP was the same thing. I was just doing it with a much larger group of people. And so that meant that I had to put together a management team under me who could deal with the day-to-day. -day. And so typically we were doing that on a geographical basis. So I had managers in the various geographic regions and it was a question of sort of coordinating it from on high, getting involved 
at the appropriate level according to what the needs were. And I would imagine, I could be wrong, were you looking a lot of different photographers probably reaching out to you because they want to work with the AP? Um, what was it that if you were going to bring someone on, what is it that you're looking for in their work to, to work with the organization like the AP, you think? Um, well, photographic talent, certainly, having a good photographic eye, uh, being a good team player, because news gathering is very much a team activity in the sense that you have photographers in the field who are dependent on editors, the whole thing is dependent on technology, there's a whole organization and administrative aspect to it, so everybody needs to be pulling together on the same team. Um, and then also looking for people who were obviously passionate about journalism. Mm. Um, so I think those three characteristics, photographic talent, teamwork, and passion w is what I was looking for uh, in photographers. And when you're going to send a photographer into conflict, um, is it you want to see that they have experience dealing with situations like that? Was that a hard uh, decision to make when you're going to send someone into like a, like a really dangerous uh, location sometimes? Well, um, <clears throat> at the AP, it was all done on a volunteer basis. Okay. So people would have to want to go. And there was no shortage of volunteers, but it meant that, you know, typically people um, were passionate about it and wanted to do it. What you then had to gauge was, did they have the right level of experience and were they psychologically prepared? And it's a generational thing in the sense that, you know, when I was in the field, I was part of a group of maybe a dozen AP photographers who would be sent from big story to big story. And then when I got out of that, that same group continued and people were added to it and other people did what I did and moved on to other things. And so it was a constant like regeneration of a team. Mm. Um, and so it was difficult sometimes because you were sending people into harm's way, but at the same time, those people knew what they were getting into. And, you know, it comes with the territory. Yeah. And when you're out in the field with all these other photographers, I was curious, is, is it like a competitive environment or is there like a sense of like camaraderie? Um, is, what was kind of the feel when you're, you're around other photographers, I guess? Depends on the individuals. In some cases, it was a little bit competitive because you wanted to make sure that your images were the ones that were selected by the end users, mm. understanding that in the news agency world, um, you're sort of information wholesalers and your primary customers are other news organizations who then distribute your work to the public. Um, but obviously, when stuff got really dangerous or, or really trying, um, most people would look out for each other regardless of who they were working for. And, um, you know, uh, one thing I was kind of curious asking you about is uh, like, why is photojournalism is it still very important? Because um, nowadays, uh, I mean, not to get too political, but like you look at like the administration nowadays and they basically like have a vendetta against media um, why is photojournalism so important nowadays? And I guess, do you think, like, uh, with our current president, like, bashing journalists, do you think it's going to have, like, a lasting effect on, like, how people view media and journalism in the future, you think? I don't know about the future, but I know the situation today is not very good for journalists. Yeah. Um, you know, people pay attention to what the president of the United States says. 
And if that individual is bashing journalists and calling into question their credibility and labeling them as enemy of the people, yeah. you know, dictators and despots around the world take their cue from that. And they start um, muzzling and suppressing the free press in their countries. Um, I think photojournalism, like any other form of journalism, is an important pillar of democratic society. And it's... Uh, useful to, as a sort of a system of checks and balances to keep people honest and to report abuses and to report what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it will, it will remain so. Um, right now it's going through a, and has been going through a fairly sustained e- economic crisis because of shifting advertising models and shifting distribution models and, you know, all sorts of factors that have been making it harder for journalism to be profitable. Um, So it's a very complex area, but I have faith in the value of journalism, and I think what we're going through now with this administration is unfortunate, but I think it will pass. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, it's wild. Um, uh, When you look at the state of journalism now, like, who do you think is doing a good job of like covering journalism? Because like I look at a lot of different sites, and you can almost tell it's like some of it's like, it's like clickbait journalism. But in your mind, who do you think is doing a good job of like covering issues now? When you look out well, there, well, I think the news agencies, um, the Associated Press, Reuters, you know, that's the underpinning of a lot of what you might call the journalistic ecosystem because that information is so widely distributed mm-hmm. around the world. So that's a good. Um, area to look at for quality journalism. After that, um, I think the New York Times does a fine job. I think the Washington Post, the Financial Times, um, you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic Magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot of good journalism out there. What I would say, though, is that it's really important to compare and contrast information from multiple sources because bias is something inherent to us all. And I'm worried a little bit that the, the trend right now towards subscription models of journalism, where you subscribe and typically the provider is trying to cater to their subscribers, mm-hmm. I think uh, an enhanced level of bias gets introduced sometimes into journalism. And as a result, if you're a discerning reader and you really want to have a deep understanding of what's going on, it probably behooves you to check your sources and to, and to compare and contrast the information. The concern, of course, is how many people have the energy or the appetite to do that. Mm-hmm. And much of, like, a lot of people, sad state of affairs, but a lot of people get their news from, like, Facebook nowadays and things like that. It's like, it seems like a reality because, like, I, I got, like, family members who – they literally get their news from there. And I'm like, it's not really, it's just like click, it's not news. It's just like people post like essentially like news memes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's why it's important that there be um, awareness around uh, journalistic literacy. literacy. Um, And I wish that that were more taught in the schools and in the education systems around the world where kids could learn how news is generated, Uh, what to look out for in news, how to compare and contrast, and how to be more discerning about their information. Yeah, and like you're saying, like, it's a good idea to look at multiple sources because I do that all the time. Like, a lot of news sources, like, I'll I'll watch, like, Fox News. I think it's insane, but 
I think it's it's important to get a perspective because the reality is that a lot of people believe that stuff. You know, it's good to under I guess understand like other people's side of it. I suppose you know. I think it's important that there be communication even between disparate political stances. Mm. And what advice would you give to like uh, younger photographers that are interested in becoming photojournalists? Not even so much maybe maybe conflict or just photojournalists in general. Um, what what should they be working on? What skills should they work on to become a strong photojournalist in your mind? I think the modern photographer has to diversify their skill set. They have to be able to do more than one kind of photography, even if they're passionate about one kind of photography. So they have to learn how to do commercial photography. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, they might have to learn how to do social photography, weddings, funerals, that type of stuff. They might have to learn how to shoot stock photography. They might have to learn how to shoot video, how to edit video, how to gather sound, how to edit sound, how to write. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all of these things are, are important because a lot of media companies are looking for efficiencies. And so if one person is capable of doing more than one thing, that makes them more valuable to an organization. And I also think the storytelling techniques have changed as we move online and are changing every day. So I look at what people are putting together, for example, on Instagram stories. And while it's a small screen and, you know, a limited amount of space on the screen, the way people are combining different storytelling elements, whether it's animation or text or video or stills or sound, I mean, I think that's the future of journalism is more complex storytelling. And it takes skill to do that. Yeah, because that's one thing I wonder myself is like, is is being like a full-time photojournalist in the future going to be a viable career path? Because I know for myself, I've been freelancing for 10 years now since I got out of school. I've worked with like the Wall Street Journal and different publications. And I've seen budget slashing like 25% in the last 10 years. So I, 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 where do you, I guess where do you see things going in the future? Is it going to be a viable career path to be a full-time photojournalist? I think a few people will have the luxury if they're working for organizations that can have full-time photojournalists. Um, but a lot of organizations are slashing their staff and eliminating photo departments and staff photographers. So in some ways, it's becoming more of a gig economy, more of a freelance economy. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other big thing that's taken off in the last 10 years or so has been what you might call citizen journalism or user-generated content, yep. because everybody pretty much who has a mobile phone these days has a camera on the phone, and so they're able to gather imagery, whether it's still or video. Uh, sometimes that imagery can't compare to a professionally taken photograph, but oftentimes it's it suffices. You know, the dynamic now is if you're in a city and let's say there's some sort of terrorist attack, chances are that social media is going to be flooded within a matter of minutes mm. uh, with images taken by bystanders. And many times and increasingly, those images are just as good as what a professional photographer would get. And so it changes the focus in terms of what value does a professional photographer bring and how do they do it differently and more effectively 
than somebody in the street with a cell phone camera. Yeah, I guess like kind of goes back to what you're saying is like having the other skill sets of being able to record audio and video. I, I don't know if you would agree, but being able to use those tools helps you tell it a deeper story in a sense, being able to utilize those tools, I guess. It can. I mean, I th it's a question of judgment mm -hmm. and a question of um, skillful narration and the ability to put stories together in a compelling way, just as in ordinary life, there are people who are good storytellers. I mean, we all know people who can tell a great story, whereas other people can tell the same story. The facts are the same, but it's not as compelling necessarily. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at your time working at AP, I know you guys won some Pulitzers. Um, what do you, when you look back, what are you most proud of of your time there that, that you kind of accomplished there, you think? You know, I was in that job for 13 years, and I'm proud of the team that we put together. And we put together a super well-oiled team that was, to my mind, the best team in the business, um, was full of dedicated, compassionate, and passionate men and women who made it their business to tell the story of the world every day. And I look back when that machine, if you like, that team, was working as it should be, it was unbeatable. I mean, we were coming up with the images time after time, and yeah, prizes are only a part of it. Um, it's sort of the recognition of your peers, but for a time, we were killing it. We were, you know, Pulitzer Prizes, all sorts of other awards. We were the number one team in the business, and everybody wanted to work with us, mm -hmm. and I was proud of what I was able to contribute to putting that team together. No, that's amazing. And I think I, if I read correctly, when you're at the AP, you traveled to North Korea to set up a bureau in uh, uh, Pyongyang. Um, uh, what was that experience like? That was super interesting. Um, so North Korea is, as you know, a sort of a closed off country. And uh, at some point we made contact with an individual who was acting as sort of a go-between between US journalists and the North Korean government. And so we started to be able to get people in there to cover certain things when and if the North Koreans were interested. And so we were able over time to build up trust and build up our contacts there, and that gradually over a few years morphed into the opportunity to set up a bureau. And so I was part of the team tasked with setting that bureau up. And, you know, we were under no illusions. We knew we were going into a highly controlled environment. We knew that we weren't going to have the freedom that we might have in other cities or democracies, certainly. But we felt that it was important to show a little bit of what was going on in North Korea, that that was preferable to not showing anything at all. And so it was a complex effort to set up the bureau there. It required, I don't know, five or six trips into North Korea. We had to do a photo workshop there for North Korean photographers. We did a joint photo exhibition with the official news agency there. Um, you know, we did all sorts of stuff and eventually we got the bureau opened and we were able to get photographers and reporters and videographers in there with some regularity. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because I saw a piece um, that Vice did like years ago and they went there. I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but basically 
the state officials once you got there they drove basically told you where you can go where you can stay like they they sh- they put them in a hotel that was literally empty there was just like them and the four journalists there that was it and it's just all if they show you it's all this like propaganda and state-run media it's pretty wild yeah it's a super controlled environment and you know it's also a question of building trust. So when we would first go to North Korea, they would move us around in a, in a small bus with curtains on the windows, mm. and we weren't able, we weren't allowed to open the curtains. And then, you know, on the next trip, you could open the curtains, but we weren't allowed to make pictures. And then on the next trip, you might be able to make a few pictures, but not many. And then on the following trip, you could make as many pictures as you liked. And so it was a process of trust building, which for me, Trust is the sort of fundamental underpinning of all journalism, and it's a question of gaining the trust of the people that you're dealing with and them trusting you, and so long as your intent is to tell the story and show what's going on, you know, that's where things can develop. And did you get like a sense of the people when you're there, like the people you interacted with? Because like, because in in my mind, I've never been to North Korea. I just read about it. And this, in my mind, I would just be scared shitless living there. Like, did you get a sense of the people that you interacted with there? Are they like, were they happy people? Were they this sad people? Like, what was their reaction to the people, I guess? Well, I think people all over the world have a shared human condition. Mm -hmm. And so, as they say, we all put on our pants one leg at a time, regardless of who we are and where we come from. Um, So, yeah, there's commonality there. You know, North Korea is a very controlled society, and we were limited in the sense that we were, for the most part, only in Pyongyang, which is the capital. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of an artificial environment in the sense that it's a showcase city, so things for the most part work. You know, I got to drive around a little bit in the country within a couple of hours of Pyongyang, mm. and you got a sense there that things were a lot tougher and a lot more basic. But I think people around the world, you know, they have many things in common. What do they want? They want peace. They want an education for their kids. They want some level of prosperity. They want to put food on the table. They want to maintain their dignity. I mean, those are things that are common to people all over the world. I found that there was a little bit of hostility um, sometimes from ordinary North Koreans that you might bump into when they realize that you are an American. Mm-hmm. But I think that makes sense for them because they're conditioned from an early age to see America as a great enemy. So when they encounter somebody who's from the enemy state, yep. from their perspective, they're, you know, a little bit reticent about being friendly. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting uh, experience. Uh, and I guess what was kind of your next step once you left the AP? I know you're working at Adobe now. Um, was there kind of a gap in between that? or? Yeah, so I left the AP at the end of 2016, and I took a little bit of time off to figure out what I wanted to do. I was doing some consulting for the World Press Photo Foundation, uh, helping them expand their presence in the United States. And then Adobe... Uh, came knocking. Uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Scott Brout, um, who had worked at the AP at some point in his career, he reached out to me and was curious to know whether I was interested in helping him with the project that's underway here right now, which is all around the licensing of photography, and particularly in my area, the licensing of photojournalism. So about a year and a half ago, I joined Adobe, and I've, I've been here ever since. 
Yeah, I was really interested in talking to you about it because uh, for me, I didn't really realize you guys even did this type of thing. In my mind, I was like Adobe Photoshop. They're basically this a uh, like a computer software. Um, but what kind of stuff when you say the photography is it almost kind of like a are you guys creating like is it stock? Is it like a wire service you guys are creating, or what are you guys working on here? So, um, given that pretty much everybody who handles imagery, whether it's still or video around the world, does it on Adobe software, uh, about four years ago, I guess, Adobe decided to get into the content business, the idea being that we could license imagery to the users of our software under the Adobe umbrella. Um, as well as to anybody else who was interested. And so to that end, Adobe bought a French microstock agency called Fotolia. Microstock, for those who don't know, is you know very sort of generic photography of objects and sometimes people um, that can be used for any purpose. And um, with the acquisition of Fotolia, Adobe set about building out its offering. So we now offer premium stock, which is more sophisticated stock photography. We offer video. Uh, we offer uh, motion graphic templates. So think about the scrolling credits at the end of a movie where you can drag and drop text into that to make it do what you want. We offer uh, 3D imagery. We offer illustrations. We offer vectors. Uh, and the most recent addition to the offering has been photojournalism. So we have some arrangements with some providers, um, and my job is to grow our offering in photojournalism and figure out efficient ways and better ways to deliver it to the customers and in response to customer needs. In terms of like photojournalism, who's your, I guess, customer? Who, who do you find is like, who is it like? people that randomly just want stock photojournalism or who's the yeah there are but broadly speaking two sets of customers so there's the a la carte customer somebody who comes to our website or of course all of this is accessible through the apps themselves so you can find it through photoshop or through premiere on the video side so somebody who's interested in licensing photojournalism Photojournalism is only available for licensing for editorial purposes, Got that it. is to say for storytelling purposes. So we're not licensing um, photojournalism for commercial purposes. We're doing it for photojournalistic purposes. And then the other customer is what we would call the corporate customer, so the parent companies of media companies who are interested in doing a bundle deal that might include multiple different types of content, and they want a certain amount of photojournalism as part of that offering. And so what we're doing is essentially building out our partnerships with various providers to have a broad offering of photojournalism. And do you guys have, like, staff photographers that work here, uh, photojournalists, or is more of this other photojournalists kind of reach out to you with the content they have? Right now it's only partner agencies. So we're partnering with um, any number of uh, providers, and that's what I'm working on. Um, who knows down the road if we'll get to working with individual photographers. I hope so, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of construction going on here right now around building out the business. No, it's really interesting stuff. And I, I also saw you've done some teaching at the ICP and Eddie Adams Workshop. Um, what do you enjoy about like teaching and doing those type of things? Well, I enjoy giving something back to the profession that's given me so much. I think that's an important sort of moral and practical obligation that I have. 
And I also enjoy the energy of the students. Every time I teach, I learn something. I learn something about our profession, about how it's changing, about myself, about the students, about the world. So I find it very enriching. I find that it keeps me young. Yeah, that's exciting. And uh, are you still, do you still take photos yourself at all anymore? Or? Occasionally. Yeah. You know, I have a couple of small cameras occasionally. I mainly take pictures of my family. I might have a 12-year-old son, so I photograph him playing soccer, or I'll photograph around in my neighborhood if I see a picture. But I enjoy taking pictures. I don't do it as much as I would like to, perhaps. But yeah, I still do a little bit. And a couple more questions. We'll wrap up here. Um, are there any uh, working photojournalists uh, working today you think we should be paying attention to? Is anybody's work that you, you look at and that you admire kind of work in today? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of good work out there. I mean, oh, um, John Moore, for example, at Getty Images, uh, he's done some amazing work lately around the militarization of the border with Mexico, uh, which is in the news now, of course. Um, he's dedicated the last 10 years, a lot of time, to telling that story. He's done an excellent work. Um, you know, there's such a richness of, of photographers yeah, out there. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. It's a tough uh, question. <laughs> it's a tough question. I mean, you know, people like um, Daniela Zaltzman um, have been instrumental not only through their own work around identity and around, um, you know, different cultures, but also through working to make photography a more diverse space. Photography for the longest part of time has been male-dominated and particularly white male-dominated. Mm -hmm. And people like uh, Daniela through her collective Women Photograph and Brent Stewart through uh, Diversify Photo, they've been working really hard to um, hold editors and news organizations accountable and um, by presenting them with the facts of who is taking the pictures and how those pictures are being displayed. And so there's really important work being done around diversifying the photojournalists who are out there telling the story of the world every day, which is hugely important. Yeah, definitely really important. And uh, yeah, I guess my last question, um, you've been w working in photography uh, for a long time. Um, what kind of keeps you excited about photography and anything, uh, any goals for yourself, anything you're hoping to work on in the future, I guess? You know, technology has always played a role in photography, um, especially in recent years with the advent of digital technology. And so I'm really excited about the nexus between uh, technology, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, facial recognition, the use of photography for different purposes, whether it's medical or social or societal. I mean, photography is more prevalent than, than ever. Somebody referred to it the other day as being the internet of cameras. Yeah. I mean, you're more and more cameras, whether they're surveillance cameras or cell phone cameras or drones or... So I think photography is very much alive. Imagery is very much alive. And I'm interested in exploring all of those vehicles um, fundamentally uh, in order to better reflect what's going on in our world in order to educate people and find the common ground between people and peoples. Well, Santiago, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. It was a real pleasure talking to you. 
My pleasure. Great uh, great to sit down, Alex. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Santiago Lyon. Uh, today's episode was sponsored by PickDrop. PickDrop is a image transfer tool. Uh, it was designed by a photographer with photographers in mind. Um, it's a great tool to use whenever you need to send off your files to clients. Um, you can create custom galleries. Um, your clients can write notes on the photos you send to them, rate them. It's just a really easy way to organize all the files um, that you need to send off to your clients. I've been using it for a couple weeks now, and it's really just helped me uh, keep myself more organized. It looks really professional, and uh, it's just kind of changed the game for me you know for years i was using like zip folders and uh some of those old outdated uh tools like dropbox or we transfer but with PicDrop, they've really kind of designed a uh, tool with photographers in mind and like i said it's just kind of helped me stay organized and um i really enjoy it and can't recommend it enough and with today's episode if you use the promo code photo banter when you sign up at pickdrop.com you'll get two months free um so definitely go go sign up and remember to use the promo code photo banter at pickdrop.com when you sign up and you'll get two months free and uh yeah as well i just need to give a big thank you to our guest santiago lyon uh what a pleasure talking to him he's done so much amazing stuff within his career i know i learned a lot i hope you guys enjoyed it and as always i'll be having weekly podcasts every monday on itunes soundcloud uh we're now available on spotify google play and uh wherever you can find podcasts and as well as my website at alexgagnephoto.com and on my instagram at alexgagnephoto thanks so much for listening and take care